My name's Ross, and I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm glad you're here if you're visiting with us. Um, I hope you'll let us know that you were here, because we'd love to reach out and say hello to you. We won't bother you uh, very much, but do want to uh, thank you for being here today. A couple of, of notes before we get into God's Word. One, this is Veterans Day weekend, and so I just want to thank all the veterans among us for your selfless sacrifice and service to our country and uh, for the, the safety and the freedom that you have provided for all of us. So thank you very much for your service. The second thing I want to do is I want to give you a, an update on our campaign uh, that we walked through back in, uh, in August. And I, so I'm giving this to you live. I actually made a video this week, but I feel weird showing a video of myself while I'm standing here. Um, but it'll probably go out in an email to you if you have not unsubscribed from the Bethel emails. Um, it's okay. I mean, we know who you are, but, uh, but uh, we probably, it's not something we're putting out on social media, but we do want the congregation to know what the update is. And so I've got some slides and I hope they're in the same order um, that I've got here. Um, let's see, let's start with the first one. Okay. Yeah. So we're good. So we received 199 pledges and this is across all the campuses in the month of August. And the next one will tell us we also had 37 gifts that were given um, that weren't attached to a, to a pledge, but were part of the exceedingly abundant campaign. And if you weren't with us, uh, that, that phrase comes from the end of Ephesians chapter 3, where Paul prays uh, that God does exceedingly abundantly more than we could ask or imagine. And we looked back at uh, the 40-year history of Bethel realizing that he did far more than those first families that gathered in 1982 could have imagined. And we have that same expectation as believers today, uh, this church at Bethel, looking forward to the next 40 years. So it brings us to a total of 236 families that have participated so far. Um, and so with the pledges plus the additional giving, our campaign total is uh, 2.869, million, dollars, uh, which brings us to about 48% of the $6 million goal. And so a couple of words about that. One, it's not too late uh, for you to participate. We've still got some pledge cards in the foyer, um, or you can do that online. We'd love for you to be a part of this. Secondly, um, if you have made a pledge, uh, now's the time we want you to begin thinking about when you're going to make those pledge gifts. Uh, and so part of the, um, the priorities that we will um, go after uh, with the money that we've received will depend on the fulfillment of the pledges. And so we are not going to be a church that badgers you about that, but we do want to ask you if you would begin now. Uh, planning when you're going to give that gift. And if you're able to give one part of the gift or all of the gift before the end of this fiscal year, or this, this calendar year, we'd love for you to do that. We've got one of the projects that's coming due the beginning of February, and that would help us greatly. And then I'll just say one more word about something that um, came in, really has kind of come in over the last six or eight months, and we want to celebrate it. It is not necessarily a part of this exceedingly abundant campaign, 
but knowing this man, I know um, that any of this that we would use toward it, he would be thrilled about it. And we, as elders, are still making a decision on what to do. But there was a, a man in this congregation here at the South Campus that passed away within the last year. And to our great surprise, um, he left a good portion of his estate and his material wealth to Bethel um, that upwards of 850, almost a million dollars worth of things. And so I want to tell you that story in a time to come, but to also let you know um, it's a great gift and one that we want to celebrate and are very thankful for here at Bethel. All right, so that's the, that's the update on the campaign. Here's what I want you to do. If you've got your Bibles, go to Joshua chapter 9. That's where we're going to be this morning. And we're there because we've been walking through this book of Joshua. It's the sixth book of the Old Testament. And it is the book that tells us about the Israelites after they've come out of, uh, of Egypt, out of the, the years of slavery, brought out by Moses. They've wandered the wilderness for 40 years. And now in Joshua, it tells the story that under the leadership of Joshua, the Israelites are finally, they've crossed the Jordan River and are entering into the promised land. Um, God's people entering into the promises of God. And we've seen all the ups and downs so far in just nine chapters of, of what it is that uh, these people of God, as they, as they seek to walk with God, how they have done that successfully and how they have stumbled and failed. And this morning is a very interesting passage. In fact, it, it's one that's puzzled me uh, for a while, and I'll do my best to make sense of it with you this morning. But to start out with it, I, I need to tell you about a girl named Tara Adams. And I sure hope nobody in this room knows Tara Adams. Uh, she was a girl that I briefly dated in college. I say dated. We, we went out a few times. But um, her sorority had a uh, formal dance, and the dance took place in San Antonio, Texas, and she invited me to go. And I wasn't super thrilled about going. Um, one, it was a long way away. It was a lot of cost, all those things. But um, I agreed to go. And, um, but also made it clear, it's like, look, I, this has got to be low key. I mean, this is like, you know, we're friends. I'm, you know, I don't want you to make a big deal of this. And um, uh, so there was that. So we get to San Antonio, Texas. Some of you know that I went to college with uh, my longest, oldest friend, Clark Crawford. And uh, he happened to be there with, with some other buddies. And we were standing in the lobby. We were about to go up. We were going to be rooming together in this hotel there on the board, on the, uh, on the river walk in San Antonio. And just before we went up to the hotel, my date, Tara, had, gave me a, a little gift bag and said, hey, this is for you. Um, and we were going to spend the day walking up and down the river and, you know, eating at the things and all that stuff. And um, it's for you for, for today. And I was like, oh, well, thank you. It was a nice surprise. So I went up to the room and pulled it out, and it was a nice polo shirt and um, some, a new pair of shorts and, uh, I mean, er everything, socks, a pair of cool tennis shoes, the whole nine yards. And the guys in the room were like, man, that's pretty awesome. And, I, and it really was pretty awesome. It was very nice. And so put all those things on for the day. I mean, I was a poor college student. I was glad to get a new set of clothes. But, uh, 
put, put them on, and then we all went down, and we waited in the lobby for the girls to come, and we were going to spend the day on the Riverwalk. And we get down there. All of a sudden, the, we're down there waiting, and the elevator doors open, and our, uh, uh, the girls we were with for the weekend uh, came out of the elevator, and it didn't take me but about three seconds to realize I was in trouble. Because Tara stepped off the elevator wearing the exact same thing I was wearing. We were in matching outfits. Which is the opposite of we're going to just keep this friendly. I mean, so all day long, I'm listening to my buddies, particularly Clark Crawford, Announced to everyone on the Riverwalk that we are together. And um, deception, that, that's what it was. And I told her that later. Um, but that, so, but that sets up what we're going to be looking at in Joshua chapter 9. One of the, one of the most interesting uh, stories in uh, the book of Joshua, and one that's a little bit hard to navigate through. There's people who want to interpret God's Word and say, okay, what does this mean? How how does this thing work out? What's God doing in this chapter? To remind you a little bit of how Joshua goes, the first five chapters describe what it is for the Israelites to enter the land, where they camped out on the west side scouted out the east side. Then they crossed the Jordan into the promised land and set up camp outside of Jericho. And so the first five chapters covers all of those events. And then chapter 6 through 12, which is what we're in right now, tells the story of Israel conquering the land. And it begins with the battle at Jericho. And then it moved to Ai or Ai, where Initially, the Israelites are defeated because they've got sin in the camp. And then the next chapter, they'll actually end up defeating I. And then 9 through uh, 11, really, to the middle of 11 or middle of 12, we're in this section where um, we're going to have some conquests. But what we're going to see is the kings that live in Canaan are going to come together and form a coalition. They're there didn't take long for the news to travel. The Israelites have moved into the town and they're conquering uh, these cities one by one under the direction of their God. And so we're going to find out at the very beginning that the kings decide they're going to come together and form a coalition against Joshua and against Israel. And so that's where we are. Look at verse 1 of chapter 9 and we'll walk through this. It says, as soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan and the hill country and in the lowland along the coast of the great sea toward Lebanon. And then it's going to name these people that we've we've encountered already, the the people in Canaan that Israel's to go in and and to conquer, the Hittites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Perizzites, Hivites and the Jebusites, all the ites. They heard of this and they gathered together as one to fight against Joshua in Israel. So up to this point, it's just been one city at a time. Now it's a, it's a coalition of cities, or, or better, a coalition of, of nations. 
And it's new, and it, 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 as readers, it's going to surprise us a little bit. Because we remember all the way back in Joshua chapter 1, where God promised Joshua, no man will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. In Jericho, we find that the inhabitants of Jericho, their hearts melted when they heard the reports that Israel was outside. But now the kings, they've, they've united against Joshua. They've united against Israel. They don't seem afraid at all. And, and maybe some of that has to do with Israel's failure with regard to, um, to Ai, to, to, to that city. Because initially they were conquered and maybe, you know, it's like every NFL football team right now, um, or every, rather, every college team right now that plays Alabama, you, you know, they think, well, a couple of teams have beat them, we can beat them also. And so that's what's going on. And so look at verse 3. Now, now here comes into the, the heart of the, the situation. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon, Gibeon is about seven miles from Bethel, which is near Ai, which is the site of their last um, battle. It's larger than Ai. Um, and it's possibly the capital city of the Hivites. So when the inhabitants of Gibeon, Gibeon heard that Joshua, or what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, they, on their part, acted with cunning and went and made ready provisions and took worn-out sacks for their donkeys and wineskins worn out and torn and mended with worn-out patched sandals on their feet and worn-out clothes and all their provisions, meaning the food they brought, was dry and crumbly. They, they acted with, with cunning, the text says. Shrewdness, maybe yours is translated that way. The, the term in and of itself is, is neutral. It's the context that, that you have to use to determine what that word actually means. In the Psalms, it's translated as prudence. It's the companion of wisdom. In Exodus, the word is used, and it's, it's used of, of uh, how a killer would stalk his victim. It all depends on the context. And the observation's been made, and it's not been made by me, um, so I don't want to press it too much, but it is interesting, is, is that when Israel comes into the promised land, they're going to face testings right up front. So they're going to be tested in their faith, you know, tested in how they are going to be God's people in this land. And they're tested at pressure points that all of us face. And, and we could turn to the New Testament and find that John writes in his epistle, he says in 1 John chapter 2, these uh, words that might be familiar to you. It says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the, Father, uh, the love of the Father is not in him. For, for all that's in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world's passing away with all its desires, but whoever 
does the will of God abides forever. We know this kind of from the old King James translation as the world and the flesh and the devil, right? And in some ways, that's how the Israelites have, have met with the temptations. You, you could look at Jericho in, in some sense as the world. You know, they come face to face with this potentially oldest city in, in the world with these great fortifications. With the ark of God, the, the mercy seat that represents Christ right in the middle of them and And God overcame the walls of Jericho. It wasn't through their efforts. And we're reminded where Jesus says, take heart, I've overcome the world. When you move to the city of Ai, the very next step, the second step into the promised land, and they're tested in the area of the flesh. You remember Achan who saw the, uh, the, the, the riches there that were so easily to be taken, and he takes them and he, and he hides them and buries them in his tent. And the language that was used there, that he, that he saw it, and he, and he wanted it, and, and, then, he, and then he took it. And God had said, no, that's not for you. And it was this battle of the flesh for Achan that the whole nation ended up suffering from. Well, the Gibeonites, if we were to follow the, the pattern here, in some ways they, they really are going to come face to face with the schemes of the devil. In fact, the, the the Bible tells us that, that, that Satan, he's the accuser. He's the liar. He's the one who seeks to deceive. In fact, you can go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, and you can see how it begins. So notice the elaborate deception here. Verse 6, and so they went to Joshua, these men who um, were cunning. They're from Gibeah, they're, they're, uh, just from, they're from six miles away. They put on this theater of uh, worn sandals and, and worn out wine sacks and worn out shoes and dry and crumbly food. And, and so in verse 6, they went to Joshua in the camp of Gilgal, which is just outside of Jericho. And they said to him and to the men of Israel, we have come from a distant country, so now make a covenant with us. It probably were, you know, they're here, Israel's in the south, and, you know, they, they probably got some, like, New York accent that they're using, or, you know, maybe British accent they employ. We've come from a distant country. Make a covenant with us. But the men of Israel said to the Hivites, perhaps you live among us then how can we make a covenant with you? We'll talk about that in just a second. And they said to Joshua, well, we, we're your servants. And Joshua said to them, who are you and, and where are you from? And they said to him, well, we're from a very distant country. Your servants have come. Because of the name of the Lord your God, for we've heard a report of him and all that he did in Egypt And all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon, the king of Heshbon, and Og, the king of Bashan, who lived in Ashtaroth. 
See, the Gibeonites, they knew what they were up against. They knew because they were Hivites that they were the enemy of God and his people and they knew what was waiting for them, being devoted to destruction. And so they say, listen, we've come from a long way away. No, 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 we're not from here. You've never heard of us. We got the report on you guys and we set off to travel and we're so glad that we found you just in time. This is their story. Now, they knew about Israel. They knew about their reputation. Here's what's interesting. They also knew, they also knew God's word because they knew exactly what to say. Now, the question becomes, how would these Gibeonites know this word of God that was given to Israel in the wilderness? Well, do you remember last week when Israel, after the, they defeated Ai, they went up towards Shechem and between the two mountains, uh, Mount Gerizim and uh, the, the other mountain, and they, they shouted back and forth at each other, remember the blessings of the curse. But it said in there that, that, that Joshua, they made this pile of stones and put plaster on it, and then Joshua wrote the entire the entire book of probably Deuteronomy, all, all on there, and then he read it out loud to the people. You know, I think it's possible that the Gibeonites had been spying on the Israelites. Maybe they snuck up after the Israelites left and they read that, that text of Deuteronomy because here's what it says in Deuteronomy 7. When the Lord your God, God's instructing Israel, when, when he brings you into the land and you're entering it to take possession of it and uh, clears away many nations for you, the, Hiv- the Hivites and Gergeshites and Amorites and Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, Shebeshites, seven nations that are mightier than you. And when the Lord gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them. Show no mercy them. can imagine a couple of Gibeonites who snuck up over to Shechem and climbed up halfway on the mountain and they began to read these and they said, well, we're, this, is, this is bad news for us. These people have the one true God on their side. And when they walk with God and they're obedient to him and enjoy the blessings that, that, he's, that he's promised them, there is nothing that they cannot do. There's a sense in which the Gibeonites understood this. Whether they understood it from reading the, what Joshua wrote or they understood it from the reputation the, the Israelites had, that's what they knew. In Deuteronomy 20, it does make provision, however, talking about the cities that are very far away, which are not cities of nations here. But those cities, the people from those cities, you can enter into covenant. You can make peace with. This is what it says in Deuteronomy 20. And so the Gibeonites, they knew this somehow. And so they put on this ruse. That, hey, no, we're not from six miles away. We're from a long way away, which means if we're from a long way away, you can make a covenant with us. We can make peace with each other. They knew of God and his people, just like Rahab did in, 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 in chapter 2. They knew of his power. They also knew 
God's word regarding the treaties and the provision of peace. So look at verse 11. It says, so our elders and all the inhabitants of our country said to us, this is still the Gibeonites speaking, take provisions in your hand for the journey. Go meet them and say to them, we're your servants. Come now, make a covenant with us. See, here's our bread. It was still warm when we took it from our house. This is our food for the journey on the day we set out to come to you. But now behold, it's dry and crumbly. Look how old and sad our bread is. And these wineskins, well, they were new when they were filled. And behold, they've burst. And all these garments and sandals of ours, they're worn out from the long, long journey. We've been, this is what they're doing. They pretend to be people they are not. so that they can enter into peace with the people otherwise they would have no chance at a future. See, remind us, the book of Joshua is more than history. To, to the original readers, uh, you know, it was prophecy. In fact, they were, it was lumped together in a section called the, you know, uh, the, the early prophets. It's more than history. It was theology. It's history interpreted through the lens of who God is and what, what it means to be God's people. And, and there are three failures of the Israelites here with the Gibeonites. One is a spiritual gullibility. They're gullible. Jesus in Luke chapter 16. He says this in a really kind of startling passage, really. He's giving a parable and his conclusion is, the sons of the world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. There's a shrewdness, there's, you know... There's this sort of wisdom that the people of the world have that people of light don't, don't have. And Jesus is saying this sort of instructively. He's saying, listen, as God's children, we, we have a heavenly future. We should be as diligent in assessing the long-term effect of our actions as those who don't know God and are just trying to protect, you know, their earthly goods or their earthly security. I mean, we should be at least as good as they are. What we're planning for, what decisions we make, they're, they're eternal decisions. We're never called to be foolish and careless in the ways we think and act and the decisions that we make. Well, there's spiritual gullibility. There's also this spiritual superficiality, if you will. They're flattered by the spiritual language used by the Gibeonites. You know, the Gibeonites show up and they're like, oh, brother. Bro, I mean, brothers and sisters, praise the Lord. 
They're using all the right language. I mean, and they're telling, look, we've heard all about the great things that God's been doing through you. I mean, who doesn't want to hear how they're being talked about in all the right ways? It's not just this gullibility and superficiality, but the biggest problem is the spiritual impatience. Look with me in verse 14. So the men, they they took some of their provisions. This is Israelites. They, They took some of them. Which means in the context, they they were probably making this covenant. And part of the covenant would have used this bread that they brought and the wine that they brought. That they entered into this fellowship meal with them. That then then they, they, they ratified a covenant in the process. So the men took some of their provisions, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. And Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live and the leaders of the congregation swore to them. It's a spiritual impatience. They they don't inquire of the Lord. They had a way to inquire of the Lord about this. In Numbers chapter 27, the high priest, the, the, the Urim and the Thummim, you, you know about this. If you don't, you can look it up. But, but it was a way that God had provided in that day, in that time, for Israel to seek his will about decisions that would come up. So you see, what they were going off of is they were going off their common sense. And let me just say this, and, and this may be so important for somebody here um, to hear this morning, because I know it's important for me to hear. Common sense, your common sense, does not equal the Word of God. Your common sense doesn't equal the Word of God. We, uh, listen, we live so much of our lives out of the pocket of common sense and never seek the Lord. See, they, they asked the right questions. They, they did some of the due diligence. Well, where are you from? Well, we're from a long way away. You know, they might should have asked, well, what's the name of the town? What are your people like? How, how many days travel was it? They did some due diligence, but the, but the text is clear. I mean, they didn't pray. They didn't ask God. Here's a question. Do, do we need to seek guidance only when we are in doubt? Do, do, do we need not be careful to, when we begin to think, well, there's no reason to consult the Lord in this matter. I mean, it's, it's, it's crystal clear, isn't it? I'll give you an example. Um, my daughter's, my oldest daughter's senior year in high school, Maggie, um, she came to me before her senior year sometime in that summer. And, um, uh, and so, but let me say for the uh, sake of the story, let me give you an ending. The relationship that we have with our daughter Maggie right now is outstanding. 
okay? The relationship we were having with our daughter the summer before her senior year of high school, I wouldn't call that outstanding. I would call it God preparing us to launch her into the world, okay? Um, I remember, you know, she's a little baby with, oh, man, well, maybe she'll never grow up and leave, you know, and then by her senior year, we're like, when, when is this deal over? When, when, when is she gone? But she came to me, and she said, hey, Dad, I want to go to the downtown campus my senior year. Downtown campus of Bethel Bible Church. My immediate response which probably had um, some common sense, but probably a little pride, uh, you know, all kinds of things mixed in. And I'm like, what? No, we're going to church as a, as a family. What we're going to do. I didn't even listen to her. Hardly considered it. And I can tell you, I absolutely did not pray about it. Impulsively, impatiently, I assumed a motive on her part. I, I impatiently answered her. Well, I, I, I have to tell you, I wasn't very many days. I, was, I became very convicted about that and thought, man, I didn't even give that a, I didn't even give that a consideration. Turns out I didn't even let her finish the, the story. I, I, I absolutely shut her down. I talked to Eric Barton, the the campus pastor downtown, and I was like, can you believe this? And he said, yeah, I can believe it. I'm the one that talked to her about it. <laughs> I told her we'd love, if, if she could, to come and to help us with our children's ministry. She's so good with kids. I said, really? She said, yeah, what did she tell you? I said, I don't know. I didn't let her finish. So I prayed about it, and Leslie and I did, and we talked about it. I thought, you know what? Absolutely, that's a good spot for her. I mean, you might not know this about pastor's kids. If you are one, you know this. They hardly can hear their dad anymore. It's so good for her to go be there and to listen to Eric. She loves Eric. And Man, she heard from God, and I'll tell you, it was... Um, you know, serving in, in her church, and it, it, it was set something in her heart that even today, all these years later, it's the first thing she does when she gets to a church is serve. One writer said, "No proposed course of conduct can be so clear to a Christian as to excuse him or her from the duty of seeking direction from above." So not, not that you have to ask the Lord, you know, should I get a haircut at 3 o'clock or 4 o'clock today? It's not that. God's granted us tremendous wisdom to be able to live our lives and, and you know, not be paralyzed like that. One right, he goes on and says, the Scriptures do not require wilting in the everlasting arms, only leaning on them. But we must beware of the subtle unbelief that assumes I have this under control. We need not only the power of God to overwhelm our obvious enemies, but also the wisdom of God to detect our subtle enemies. Unfortunately, 
We too often crave God's power while we ignore God's wisdom. Boy, isn't that right? Maybe something today for you or this week or something that will come up. And you'll be reminded, wait a minute, I'm operating out of common sense here. I haven't sought the Lord. You think, well, how do you, how do you seek the Lord? Well, if you've been to Discover Bethel lately, you know one of the things we talk about there are the three resources that God's given us. We have the Word of God, we have the Spirit of God, and we have the people of God. And that God means for us to, to seek Him. And he, he, God's not trying to hide His will from us. And that we seek Him in His Word. And, and I say that to say, I, I'm not saying you're going to open God's Word and know exactly what to do about this investment or this, you know, the, the house you're going to buy or the woman that you're going to marry. I'm not saying that you open this and, and God will, will speak that direct answer to you. But I am saying, I know that when I am in God's Word and I'm reading it, that the Spirit of God uses the Word of God in such a way that Things become clear in my life. And that this word is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. And it reads me while I'm reading it. And then there's the people of God. Seeking counsel from those that are older than me or wiser than me Further than just further down the road, and asking them to pray. Well, look at verse 16. We find out if they had just waited three days. And by the way, they entered into a covenant, which is a very big deal. A covenant. Galatians 3:13. Covenant, once it's made, even on human terms, can't be added to or taken away from once it's been ratified. Look at how the deception gets revealed. Verse 16, at the end of three days, after they had made a covenant with them, they heard that they were neighbors and that they lived among them. And the people of Israel set out and reached their cities on the third day. Now there were cities where Gibeon and Chepherah and Beeroth and kiriath the jig is up. The, the truth is out. Israel is in covenant with a bunch of liars. What to do now? See, this is where the passage gets a little difficult for us. What do we do with it now? Israel by virtue of who they are as God's people, they are meant to represent God. We're, we're the same way. It, what people will know of God, the, the one true God, they will know from the Israelites. And so the question, who, who is God? Well, God's faithful. God takes covenant seriously he keeps his covenants even with liars and you might say even with liars and I'll say yes in fact that's the whole book of Genesis he makes an unconditional covenant with Abraham 
Abraham, the one who lied about his wife twice. Makes an unconditional covenant, that same covenant with uh, Abraham's grandson, Jacob. Guess what Jacob is? Guess what Jacob's name means? Liar. One deceit after the other. Who is God? He's God who's faithful to his covenants. Unconditionally faithful to what he's promised. So verse 18, but the people of Israel did not attack them. They wanted to. They got word that these people are liars. We should, we should end them right now. But because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, then all the congregation murmured against the leaders. But all the leaders said to the congregation, we've sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. And now we may not touch them. This we will do to them. Let them live. Lest wrath be upon us because of the oath that we swore to them. And the leaders said to them, let them live. So they became cutters of wood and drawers of water for all the congregation, just as the leaders had said them. And Joshua, verse 22, uh, summoned them and he said, why did you deceive us? It's the same thing Jacob asked his father-in-law Laban when he tricked him with the two daughters. Why, why did you deceive me? And you're supposed to answer as the reader, really, Jacob? It's easy to know why he deceived you. Why did you deceive us, saying we we're very far from you when, when you dwell among us? Now, therefore, you're cursed, and some of you shall never be anything but servants, cutters of wood and drawers of water for the house of my God. They answered Joshua, because it was told to your servants for a certainty that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land before you. We feared greatly for our lives because of you, and, and, and we did this thing. And now, behold, we're in your hand. Whatever seems good and right in your sight to do to us, do it. And so he did this to them, and he delivered them or saved them. Remember what Joshua's name means? God saves. Saved them out of the hands of the people of Israel, and they did not kill them. But Joshua made them that day cutters of wood and drawers of water for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord to this day in the place that he should choose. They become servants, in other words. It's kind of their curse, if you will, but it turns out that curse is a blessing because not only are they going to serve, you know, with cutting the wood and drawing the water, they're also going to serve the altar of the Lord. These people who were far away from God, who would have never had an opportunity to come into relationship with God, through this they now come into and are brought into the very altar it reminds us of the psalmist when he writes in Psalm 84, for a day in your courts is a better than a thousand elsewhere. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of God than dwell in the, wind, the, the tent of wickedness. Chapter 9. Joshua, he makes the mistake of making a covenant with the Gibeonites, but he's not going to add to that failure by breaking the covenant. 
He, he could undo what he had done, but he chooses the integrity of owning what he's done and making good on it. His word is his bond, if you will. So let me say to you this morning, the Lord's able to, to help us live with our mistakes because of the ocean of his marvelous grace. The Lord doesn't desire that we'd be paralyzed by our past failures. And so he gives his people grace despite their sin. He's going to bring the Gibeonites in to the people of God despite their deceit. He gives them grace, alien and strangers and deceivers as, are brought into God's fellowship. God was working everything together for the good of those that love him. The Gibeonites would end up serving the altar of the Lord. And Nehemiah, you're going to help rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. He works all things together for good of those who love him. And we're reminded in this passage, all things means all things. Even our sin, even our failure. Without excusing our sin or hiding the consequences, he he forgives and he's able to fold even those all things into the good. So God never justifies your sin, but he's never paralyzed by it either. And because of the grace of God that that works in our lives, we we don't have to be paralyzed either. Who, Who of us hasn't failed? Who of us hasn't been deceitful or been deceived? Who of us has clean hands and a pure heart? Who is it that Joshua delivers? Who is it that he saves? Deceivers, deceivers, liars, and enemies who had no hope. And let me just say, the greater Joshua, the one that is to come, Jesus, he does that for us. He saves, he delivers And he takes upon himself the guilt and the shame of our sin. And he extends his offer of welcome and grace. Each one of us has a past. I don't even know the full extent of my own past. Much less what's in yours. But there's without a doubt here this morning a room full of pasts. Times where you've been full of deception. You've been outside of God's will. Maybe yours is a past of what feels like deep and unspeakable failure. Maybe even since you've come to Christ. So what's part of the message of Joshua 9? That Jesus, the greater Joshua, is more full of grace than you are of sin. He's able to restore you. He's able to use you for his glory. You see, in making sense of Joshua chapter 9, the failure of the Israelites, the deceit of the Gibeonites, and yet these people anyway are brought into the presence of God and they're protected throughout all Israel's history, is that the grace of God is greater and bigger than all of that. And it is in your life too. If you're sitting here, you know, 
kind of in the middle of your own Joshua 9 and thinking, there's no way I can get out of that. There's no way I can undo that. You don't have to. Hand it right over to God and trust that he'll, he folds that in with his grace. If you would, would you bow with me and let's pray. Father, I pray you'd bring to our minds this morning those places where we need to let grace have its effect. Father, if there's sin that needs to be confessed, I pray we'd confess it this morning. We'd bring it right to your throne. We'd know what it means that when we confess our sins, you're faithful and just to forgive us our sins. You cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But Father, your grace covers us. We can walk forward with confidence, not paralyzed, but move forward in your grace. So, Father, I pray you, you draw us into the light of your grace this morning. And the ways in which the accuser, the liar, the enemy wants us hiding in the shadows. I pray we'd step out from them and bask in the light of who you are. So, Father, we pray this the only way we can this morning. And that's in the name of your son, Jesus and by the power of your Spirit. Amen.